0: It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by ARC. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARC or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by ARC to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of ARC Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. I'm Michael Cromer, a marketing associate here at ARC. On today's episode, we will be featuring the 31st episode of In the Know with Kathy Wood, a monthly video series. Today, she will be highlighting the Bitcoin Monthly and Earnings Report that details relevant on chain activity and showcases the openness, transparency, and accessibility of blockchain data. Kathy also weighs in on the Fed, inflation, deflation, yield curves, interest rates, gold and copper prices crypto markets, and more. As always, she discusses fiscal policy, monetary policy, market signals, economic indicators, and innovation. Enjoy.
1: Greetings, everyone. I'm Kathy Wood, CEO and CIO of ARK Invest. This is In The Know, where I share with you some thoughts about what's going on in the macroeconomy and in the world of innovation. And the bad news is that the Fed has become extremely aggressive and hawkish. The good news is that we are beginning to get data that is confirming that the economy, the U.S. economy, is in recession. And if you've tuned in before, you you know that we believe that Europe and China effectively have been in recession as well. So now a global recession We're also getting a lot of indicators that prices are coming down. And I think this notion that the inflation that everyone has been worried about is quite a wrong way of looking at the world right now. We believe that deflation is the much bigger risk. We've been saying this for a time. We've been ridiculed for saying it. And we were challenged by those who were sure that we were back into a 70s style inflation scenario, we think that the pricing action, and I'm not just talking about stocks and bonds, I'm talking about commodity prices, crypto prices, and perhaps soon even housing prices, that many people will conclude the greater risk is deflation. And as you know, we don't think deflation is a bad thing per se. It is a bad thing the way the Fed has approached it, we believe. But deflation can be a very good thing if it is caused by technology and progress. And we think we're going to see a lot of that over the years. But right now we're looking at bad deflation and we're going to have to get through this. I think the next Fed move is supposed to be at the end of this month and the Fed is out of its quiet period. So all the Fed governors have been traipsing out saying we're going 75 basis points, another 75 basis points. Well, we think that they will rethink that in this month as we get not only more pricing signals, but earnings reports and guidance from companies who will be probably confirming that the US is now in recession. So, bad news, good news. Darkest before the dawn. We called this segment Finding Growth. We think growth is going to be scarce this year. And as you know, innovation is all about growth. Innovation is also about solving problems. We have a lot of problems now. A recession is going to be providing another set of problems. So lots of work for innovation to do, and that's where we believe you will find real growth. Okay, so we'll go through, as we normally do, monetary policy in a little more detail, fiscal policy, economic indicators, market signals, and we'll spend a little time or a little more time than usual on crypto, given all of the activity and concern in that space. So I did a tweet thread last weekend and basically concluding that the Fed right now is much more worried about its own legacy than it is about the economy. It is so afraid that it has let the inflation genie out of the bottle and that it won't be able to get it back that it is in unison, basically going out there and saying, we are going to tighten. We have an unconditional commitment to 2% inflation. Well, I'm going to be sharing with you a lot of indicators that will suggest that using the CPI as its guide, the Fed is making a big mistake. There's already a lot of deflation in the economy. And one of the reasons the deflation is accelerating here is because the Fed has shocked the system. We have gone from 0.25% in the Fed funds rate to 1.75% in the span of three months. That's a sevenfold increase. We've never seen that before. Now, I know a lot of critics are suggesting, oh, what are you talking about? from such a low level. You can't make a comparison to the early 80s when interest rates went from 10, Fed funds rate went from 10 to 20%, which was only a twofold increase. You just can't make that comparison. Well, yes, I can. I can make that comparison up fivefold very quickly. And I think the Fed has panicked and it's causing the economy a lot of problems. As I mentioned before, though, it's becoming obvious now, and I do believe they will change their tune with a few more reports. So what are the deflationary signals we're seeing out there? Well, one of the most obvious, but one that very few people mention, or maybe they don't monitor, are credit default swaps, CDSs. Now, this is the price of insurance against bankruptcy. So when the price of this insurance goes up dramatically in a short period of time, I certainly take note. So the five-year CDX, as measured by market, M-A-R-K-I-T, has gone from 50 to 100 year to date. And for J.P. Morgan, so a money center bank, it has gone from 48 to 102. So J.P. Morgan's credit default swaps have gone up more than the market's average. That's very interesting. And and we're trying to figure out what is that all about? We know that JP Morgan is a fortress. It's not going bankrupt, but there are some investors concerned or concerned that there might be something systemic going on. And so why not take out the insurance? Now, 102 is quite a bit below 0809. We were at 239 then and below COVID, 172. But it is above where we reached in the fourth quarter of 2018, 80. That was a vicious market downturn in only a quarter, one quarter's time. So I think it was from September to December. So this doubling in credit default swaps for the markets average and JP Morgan has us asking questions. Is there something systemic out there Our guess is that if there is, it has to do with the reach for yield that we saw during the last few years as interest rates went effectively to zero on the short end and as low as 0.5% for the 10-year treasury bond yield during the coronavirus. Now, reaching for yield, if on top there's leverage, could be a problem now, one of the reasons we don't think this is going to be a problem is because of what happened a little more than a year ago with the Archegos blow-up. Apparently, one bank didn't know the amount of leverage that Archegos had taken on, and this was true across the banking system. And so that's how that situation became so leveraged. I think risk officers are now looking for excessive leverage And so we would be surprised if there is going to be a systemic risk, but we do want to note that the concern is out there and it is elevated. Interestingly, and speaking of JP Morgan, the head or the chief investment officer of its asset management unit, by the last name Michelle, came out yesterday. And I found it difficult to believe, given that he's right in the middle of the bank, but he he basically said you know the fed waited too long and now it's going to have to work that much harder to get inflation under control and you know i think he's ignoring an incredible number of signals the first of which i've just shared with you credit default swaps the other one is the yield curve and i know i've focused on the yield curve on this webinar many times it is flat it did go negative for a time in April. We've never in post-World War II experience seen the yield curve invert without a recession soon thereafter. And we think we're in a recession and that it happened as the yield curve was inverting, which, is, which was a quick response. Now, what I'd like to feature this time is the history of yield curves. And when we've moved into crises, we've seen monetary and fiscal authorities easing quite significantly, trying to stimulate the economy, acting as a counterbalance. And often, and certainly since the early 90s, when this has happened, the yield curve has steepened to the 250 to 300 basis point range. So that's 2.5 to 3% range. And what this means is long-term interest rates are two and a half to three percentage points higher than short-term interest rates. And the reason for that is investors begin to worry about the inflationary ramifications of fiscal and monetary stimulus. So 250 to 300 is where I thought we went in the middle of the COVID crisis, because we have never seen monetary and fiscal policies as stimulative as we did during the coronavirus, when we thought we could enter a depression, just the economy, global economy, shutting down. So I was surprised as we looked back to see that uh, the yield curve steepened only to 150 basis points or 1.5%. What does that mean? What does that mean? I think it confirms that the bond market, in its wisdom, was beginning to worry about deflationary undercurrents. And so to see it flatten so quickly and having only gotten to 150 basis points is very interesting. And so what are some of these? Oh, there's one other note. The last time we saw the yield curve after a recession or during a recession getting only to 150 basis points was in the early 80s. Now, inflation and interest rates were raging at the time in the double digits, and the Fed had gotten very, very tough. The dollar was rising fairly dramatically. And what happened was the Louvre Accord was when Treasury authorities from around the world all got together, including the U.S. Treasury Secretary. And said, okay, we've got to supply the world with dollars. We'll sell dollars and buy back the other currencies. And that's what happened. So the dollar back then was very deflationary, especially for emerging markets who had a lot of debt that was denominated in dollars. So their currencies were falling apart. But their debt was denominated in dollars, and so it was becoming much more expensive for them to service that debt. We may have a similar situation now. Perhaps the dollar going up, and it's up more than 10% over the last year, which is a massive move if you're in emerging markets and your currencies are plunging, as many are. So there is a likelihood that this is saying more about the deflationary undercurrents in the rest of the world, much like it did in the early 80s. So that, that was something of note. The University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index, we got the revision to the June survey. And what we learned is consumer sentiment, as measured by the University of Michigan, has never been lower. And this series goes back, I thought it went back through the 70s. I think it goes back through the 40s. And so what is this saying? And when you parse it out, you see that high income earners, their sentiment right now is lower than the lower income earners. And now the lower income earners, we thought would be much lower. Because inflation, food and energy prices are really, really hurting. Terribly regressive tax, especially for households that are living, you know, hand to mouth, as the saying goes. To see high income earners falling off that much in terms of confidence suggests that the typical big spenders out there are not going to be there like they normally are. Regularly, sort of as an offset to what's going on, so that that was very interesting. The other interesting thing to note from the series was inflation expectations, which in the original or the preliminary release were up to three point three percent expectations for the next five to ten years on inflation. That was revised away, and so the markets which went into conniptions, and I'm talking about both the fixed income and the equity markets around that number, that was wrong. It was revised away, went back to 3.1. And if you look at this series over the last 10 years, it's kind of averaged around 3%. So not much change. So again, even there, this hysteria about inflation in the financial markets. And, you know, there are many big time, very well regarded investors out there who were just banging this drum on, hey, this is the 70s, get used to it, you know, get real. They were just wrong. They're just wrong. So that was another interesting variable out there. But it was the sentiment and this idea that if sentiment is that low, Then I'm going to come back to another concept that we've talked about in the past, and is controversial, but it's the velocity of money. From my experience, the velocity of money is influenced by a few variables, one of which is sentiment. If people are scared, as they were out of 08, 09, and they're more scared now, if people are scared, they spend less. Now, we haven't seen that yet until May. May, we had a negative consumption number outright. It was uh, minus 0.4. We'll get into this in a minute when I talk about economic indicators. And what that tells us is, yes, the consumer is now pulling back and not betting that in prices and interest rates are going up and I have to beat them and buy whatever I want now, whether it's a home or a durable good. That behavior, if it existed, is stopping. And the velocity of money, which is the rate at which money turns over as the consumer chases in an inflationary environment, it turns over faster. As the consumer recoils, it turns over slower. Well, that's very interesting because the estimate for June's money growth is based on what we know about demand deposits in the banking system is about 5%. If the velocity of money is slowing, that means that GDP growth will be less than money growth. And if money growth turns negative, as some people think it will on a year-over-year basis, it already has year-to-date. It's down from its peak. But if it were to turn negative on a year-over-year basis, then the GDP growth falling further below that would be quite the recession. So we're we're very focused on confidence and this notion that deflation is actually going to cause the opposite. If you expect prices and interest rates to go down, then you'll hold off buying. And if you're scared, you won't buy anything to begin with. Now, one of the variables, and this is switching to fiscal policy now, that could push money into negative territory is federal outlays. Federal outlays are down 20% on a year-over-year basis. Now, that makes sense. It's not a shock because there was so much stimulus put into the system. The last package, I think it was a $2 trillion package, we did not need and we sh- it shouldn't have happened, but it did. So now we're seeing the unwinding of that. Unlike the 70s, and 60s by the way we are seeing an unwinding of a stimulus program they're letting it happen and this is relevant again to this notion that we were never going to get into a 70s style inflation problem the problem in the 70s really started in 1964 the vietnam war in april that's when we entered And in May, the Great Society, that's when Lyndon Baines Johnson signed the Great Society, introducing more welfare programs and so forth. So guns and butter, as it's known, we can fund everything. And that was wrong. That was very wrong. and We paid for it in the 70s. The other thing that happened in the early 70s is we went off the gold exchange standard. It was a charade anyway. We were cheating on it. And France called us on it. So we went off the gold exchange standard. And of course, all hell broke loose in terms of inflation. So we don't have the great society, guns and butter. I mean, a new version of it. We have what we have. And we are letting the stimulus roll off. So those are very big differences from from the 70s. And I think Senators Manchin and Sinema on the Democratic side are a big reason this is happening. Senator Manchin in particular has linked the budget deficit to inflation. And so his constituents are very angry about food and energy prices. So that's why I think we're in good shape in terms of not committing the mistakes that we did in the 60s and 70s. Now, on the economy, a couple of things are changing, which I think will turn the Fed's head. One is employment. We're hearing about layoffs. We're hearing about venture capital firms advising their companies to lay off quickly because this is bad. And that is happening. We're seeing initial unemployment claims moving up. Now, if you're looking at a very long-term chart, the move up seems imperceptible. But if you're looking at the numbers, claims have gone from 167,000 during the week of April 1st, to 231,000. So that's a 35% increase. And that's a change in trend, to be sure. The other thing that's changing is housing. Almost every metric is showing weakness. We'll get the odd increase here and there. But housing is definitely losing steam. Another curious thing that we learned from the data that came out, reported in this last month, was the GDP revision for the first quarter. Now, the GDP number comes out first month after the end of the quarter. It's revised in the second month and revised again in the third month. So in June, we got a second revision for the first quarter. The most surprising thing in that revision, first of all, rarely is much revised in the third revision. But this time, real consumption, which was originally reported at 3.1% in the first quarter, was revised down to 1.8%. Now, that may not sound like a big adjustment, but that's nearly cutting the growth in half. I've never seen an adjustment that big. And I think what's happened, and this has caught a lot of companies off guard, is the consumer just started shutting down. And we saw in April, the original number reported was 0.7%. That was revised down to 0.3, which when you adjust for inflation, was probably down 0.6%, something like that. And in May, the real number was negative, minus 0.4. So we are seeing declining consumption. And we know from Target and Walmart who have been shocked. I can tell from the way management answer questions, they're shocked at how the consumer has turned off. And they are shocked at how their inventories have ballooned. We went through this last time. So 33%, I think it was for Walmart, 42% for Target. I think even Costco, 26%. Home Depot, I think was 32%. I mean, these are massive increases, and it's going to take a while for them to unwind. So what are they going to do if they want to clear their shelves? They are going to cut prices, and they have said they're going to cut prices. So there you go, deflation. We got today GDP Now, which is the Atlanta Fed's version. Every day economic statistics come out, the Atlanta Fed adjusts its real GDP number for that quarter. And today they reduced it to a decline of 2.1%. So two or three weeks ago, they had a positive 1%. Last week, they went to a minus 1.1%. And now it's minus 2.1%. So put that together with real GDP at minus 1.6% in the first quarter and we have a recession. The technical definition of a recession is two consecutive negative quarters of real GDP growth. So we have them. And we're also seeing, we get a lot of regional reports, the regional feds and other trade associations put out reports in the middle of the month. And looking at the Dallas one, Richmond, and Philadelphia, they're all in negative territory or much lower than expected. And the one that surprised me the most was Dallas, which looked like it was one of the worst reports. And that's right in the middle of energy country. so what what's that all about? And then you know, in the middle of the month, the Fed, this was June fifteenth, the Fed did seventy five basis points. Now, originally, Chairman Powell said, 50 basis points was probably going to do the trick for that month. Instead, they wanted to shock the market, and they did. And the market, again, went into a tailspin, the Marquettes. And of course, the Fed was reacting to the CPI, which had come out on June 10th. It came out at uh, higher than expected, 1%. 8.6% year over year, 1% sequentially. And on June 14th, it got the PPI. That was up 0.8% and 10.8% year over year. Now, that's what the Fed was looking at. We look at both of those as lagging indicators. If you take the two leading indicators from our point of view are when it comes to inflation, gold. And when it comes to activity output, copper. Copper is the smartest commodity. It's often called the commodity with a PhD. Now, if we look at gold, we see that it has been in a trading range, 1700 to a little less than 2100 for two years. It peaked all the way back two years ago on August 7th of 2020 peaked at $2,075. Today, it's at $1,805. Now, that is still up from the $1,200 where it was before the massive easing. But that was integrated into the price when it hit, that easing, when it hit $2,000. Since then, it's been down. And it's still in the trading range. It would have to break below 1700 to break the trading range. So when I use the word deflation, it's, the, it's approaching the lower end of the trading range. I use the word deflation mostly because we're seeing it now in a lot of commodity prices. But gold, which I probably trust gold more than any commodity to give us the right signal on true outright deflation, we're not there yet. If you look at copper, copper has been in a trading range for one year in the four to five dollar range. It peaked in March, March 11th of this year at roughly five dollars. And now it's down to 360. So it broke below that trading range. That's very significant from an economic activity point of view. And the reason it's even more significant than I think most economists might appreciate is because electric vehicles consume three to five times more copper than traditional gas-powered vehicles. And there has been a massive consumer preference shift too electric vehicles. So that breakdown below this trading range is even more significant for that reason. So those are the two. If we were at the Fed, if we had a voice at the table, we would ask at every meeting, what has gold been doing and what is copper doing? So there you have the answer. Gold is at the lower end of its trading range it did not break out to the upside. When you think about a trading range, and this has been very helpful through my career with equities, when there's a big trading range, and we used this to explain our position on Tesla at one point in time. When there's a big trading range, what that means is the bulls and bears are fighting with each other. There's a big debate. And it's going to resolve one way or the other. One camp or the other is going to be right. Thank goodness in the case of Tesla, we were very right the breakout was to the upside. In the case of gold, it seems like we're at the lower end of that range. Let's see if it breaks down. If the Fed continues to tighten, it will break down and ring the bell for outright broader based deflation. In the case of copper, the breakdown has taken place. And today we got the supply chain manager's report, its ISM report. Now, in looking back over those data, first of all, it was a bad report. Orders were negative. They dropped below 50, which makes sense. Inventories are ballooning. But when we went back to look at the peak in this series, we were quite surprised. This metric, the manufacturing ISM index, the overall index, peaked March a year ago at 637 and it's now 53. And as I mentioned, 50 is the demarcation point between expansion and contraction. So slight expansion still. Orders, this is the leading indicator of that index, however, did drop into negative territory. They peaked way back in 2020 at 67.5, and now we're at 49. And so I do believe the reaction to inventories, excess inventories, is underway. We're seeing this elsewhere. We're seeing prices come down for DRAM, and we know now why. Micron reported last night. And the two areas it cited as being very weak and where it had to revise its numbers considerably were PCs and smartphones. So PCs originally, or in its forecast it had 0% growth. Now it has, for the year, now it has a 10% decline for the year. But in order to get there, sequentially, PCs would have to remain flat. That's not going to happen. I think Micron and others are going to have to revise down their numbers again. Same thing with smartphones. Originally, they thought up 5%, now down 5% for the year. Again, that is probably too optimistic. We saw an interesting statistic today. Our analyst, Frank Downing, on NVIDIA has been tracking GPU prices, and they had been selling above the manufacturer's suggested price for about two years. They peaked at about $1,500, this particular GPU. And I think the recommended price was something like $500. So in the secondary markets, they peaked At 1500, now they're 500. So prices down two thirds there. Inventories, Taiwan Semiconductor today, overnight as well, is saying, yes, our customers are cutting back. They have too much inventory. That's in the chip sector, which is where where we had all the supply chain problems. So I think that problem's going to go away. We're seeing the shipping indexes, the Baltic Freight Index is down more than 50% from its peak. So we're seeing supply chain problems again, diminishing there. Used car prices are down 5% from their peak earlier this year. And if you annualize that, that's closer to a 10% decline. We think used car prices are going to plummet. Now that mass transit is getting back on track, households with an auto that they really don't need as much anymore can sell into what has been a very strong market. And again, when you see prices falling, then you want to sell as fast as possible, not buy. So we expect an acceleration there. And we'll see what happens with housing. I think the reach for yield reached into housing, especially the rental sector. A lot of people bought houses basically to earn a yield. And my goodness, the rental yields were very high. Those are probably going to come down. And if these people decide to sell into what has been a very hot market, home prices at the margin will come off the boil. So now let's go to markets. Well, crypto had its worst quarter since 2011. And it's a much more mature market than it was back then with the boom bust. So that's saying something. The S&P down 20% year to date, NASDAQ down roughly 30%. So the stock market has not seen a worse year to date since 1962. And that was when the Cuban Missile Crisis took place. And then what happened after that is we ended up in the great society, guns and butter, and inflation took off. But first, the stock market was a barn burner. It was very hot from 62 to 66. When it comes to bonds, this has been the worst year-to-date performance in bonds in anyone's lifetime. And by some measures, you have to piecemeal the bonds, but to try and get the record. The worst since 1788. That's more than 250 years ago. So, or almost 250 years ago. So, it's been a very, very rough, rough market for investors. We think there is light at the end of the tunnel. The light is that the Fed is getting a lot of signals that will ultimately end up in the lagging indicators called the PPI and the CPI. They're getting a lot of indicators. And I think a lot of companies are going to be telegraphing in their earnings reports this next month that we are in recession. And I do believe the Fed will do a double take. I wanna spend a little time on crypto. It has been an incredible month and fears of systemic collapse have been rife in the marketplace. So we we've seen Bitcoin it peaked way back in November at 69,000 and it is now at 19,500. It is still higher than its pre-covid 7 to 10,000 range and it is just about at its 2017 high. So this could be some support. It's also at it is below its 200 week moving average, which is at 22,500. So there is some concern that that is the new resistance. Now, as we've seen the last month play out, talk about a reach for yield. Crypto personified that, DeFi personified that. And we knew that the Luna Terra experiment with algorithmic stablecoins was not going to work. It was backed by nothing. And I remember we did a podcast with Do Kwan. It's still on our site. And I remember listening to it twice because I I couldn't understand what he was doing or saying. I am an economist by background. And so I really do try and noodle through these things. And I just didn't think that was going to work. And it failed in spectacular fashion in May and has taken Celsius down with it, Voyager Digital, uh, three-hour Arrows Capital, BlockFi almost. It was very interesting to see BlockFi's last funding round at $3 billion. This is a lending platform. And tried to do another round recently at $1 billion. Couldn't get it done. And today it seems that FTX is going to buy it out or it has the option to buy the equity for 240 million a rumor this week had it at 25 million so much better than that but much worse less than a tenth of its last round so and it's not just happening in crypto klarna just announced i believe that its last round was in the 45 billion dollar range this is a fintech company and it is doing around now at six and a half billion dollars. So big, big downruns happening very quickly. We have or we will put out today our Bitcoin monthly. We started it last month. And the title is Contagion versus Capitulation. And as you know, if you if you saw our last report, we have a lot of on-chain analytics which give us a sense of the capitulation in the marketplace and also a sense of what is going bad out there. The transparency in the market, I think, is the reason we've seen a lot of failures very quickly. We have compared to the opacity in the traditional financial markets. I think the shakeout in crypto has happened sooner and faster than it would have in the traditional financial markets. It's interesting that BlockFi is going to FTX. We know that two other platforms or companies, N, which is a, a lending platform in Canada, highly regarded, also seem to be interested, as did, I believe, Morgan Creek. Now, these are people who really know what's going on in DeFi. And if they're willing to step in here, that has increased my confidence to some extent that the systemic risk is diminishing here. With time, we're seeing that each meltdown seems to be a smaller one, not the opposite. So that is giving us some confidence. The only reason I think people are a bit on edge here is technicians who those who really don't follow the crypto markets at all they they're just technicians they follow equities bonds they they don't care what these companies do or what kind of fixed income instrument it is they just have their technicals and just off the cuff they will say well if it breaks from here it could go to 11 to 13000 from this 19.5. And the reason they say that, I can see this on the charts, is that's where there is a huge amount of support, where it peaked a lot of times in a trading range. That said, I will say that I am feeling a lot better about what's going on in the crypto world right now. You'll see our Bitcoin monthly. I would say, you know, we're neutral to positive. We're waiting for a few, a few more capitulation signals. And of course, time will tell on the systemic side here. And we haven't heard of another stress signal in the last few days. So that's good as well. So what I will leave with is what's happened in the crypto market gives you a sense of why it's going to work long run. It's transparent. And there's a lot more trust in the crypto ecosystem because of the transparency and the over-collateralization than I think there is in the traditional financial markets. And when we wonder, why, why are the CDSs going up on these banks? We wonder about the reach for yield and how leveraged some of these situations are. And we don't know where they're hiding. And so maybe that's all this is, is like, okay, the crypto market has alerted us that this reach for yield went way too far, and there are too many excesses, too much leverage around it, hedge funds leveraging 10 to 1 when yields are 2% so that they can reach the returns, their return objectives. Maybe there are some problems out there, and we will find out But for right now, I'm relieved, number one, that we have so many signals that will get to the Fed in some way, shape, or form, even if they have to wait for the CPI. They will get into the CPI and that they are suggesting to me that the Fed has already gone too far and that if it increases rates again, I doubt it'll be 75, maybe 25 or 50. I even think that will be a bit too much given what's going on out there and given the recession we're in. But at least, at least the numbers. And part of this is downward revisions. Originally, the Fed thought these numbers were very strong consumption, very strong. No, consumption's falling apart. So believe it or not, bad news is good news now, as tends to be the case in a bear market when inflation is a concern. So bad news is good news. And it's always darkest before the dawn. And I believe we've passed the darkest place. There are others out there. We are reading them in the press. They say we're only halfway there. And I think they follow algorithms. I've watched a bunch of algorithmic behavior that, you know, just chases, chases an idea, chases an idea until it stops. And I think we're getting close to that point where they who seem so right with their negative stance over the last year or so will be on the wrong side of that trade. So with that, I wish everyone a very happy 4th of July here in the United States and and everyone around the world a happy weekend. Thank you.